Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This week, we're joined by Idaho National Laboratory Director John Wagner to discuss energy policy and the lab's efforts to reduce its carbon emissions in a web-exclusive episode. Hello and welcome to this web-exclusive episode of Idaho Reports. I'm Logan Finney. We're joined by Idaho National Lab Director John Wagner to walk through the lab's goals for net zero carbon emissions, energy policy, and issues on cybersecurity in Idaho. Director Wagner, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So for our listeners and our viewers who aren't as familiar with the Idaho National Lab, can you lay out for me generally what the lab does and what your mission is? Absolutely, it'd be a pleasure to. It's my favorite, top, favorite uh, subject to talk about. So first of all, we're a Department of Energy laboratory. There's 17 different Department of Energy laboratories. We're the one focused, primary mission is nuclear energy research, uh, development and demonstration. Our vision at our, our laboratory is to change the world's energy future and secure our critical infrastructure. And so on the energy part of that, this clean energy uh, foundation with nuclear, but also how nuclear fits with other energy sources. Then on the critical infrastructure, we focus and we have a lot of expertise in both cyber and physical security for the critical infrastructure. Um, and uh, this, the, what is now the Idaho National Laboratory was established in 1949 as the National Reactor Testing Station. So we have a rich heritage that maybe we can talk about with respect to nuclear energy. We currently uh, employ about 5,400 people at the laboratory. And INO has a net zero carbon emissions plan for 2031. What does that mean? So it literally means that we intend to take our carbon emissions to net zero. So not zero, but a net zero. So it means we have to compensate for those things that we cannot, that we are unable to uh, completely eliminate. So we are a big site. Um, so we are probably the, the, arguably the most complicated Department of Energy site uh, in the complex, certainly the largest uh, by land mass of the, of the Department of Energy sites, we're 890 square miles. And at the same time, as I mentioned, our mission is about clean energy and security for energy infrastructure. So what we do is, is completely aligned with what cities, counties, companies, even countries are trying to do to, re to do deep decarbonization. So it really comes down to aligning our mission with our own operations. And we can talk in details, if you like, about where are our missions and what are we trying to do about them. Yeah, let's talk about some of those details. What steps are gonna be necessary to get to net zero carbon? So of course the first step is to understand where your mission's coming from. Um, and so the EPA bends things up in what they call scope one, two, and three. That's probably jargon for most of your viewers, so let me just spell it out a little bit more clear. Scope one um, is things that we directly emit. So for us, and, and of course the first step is just understand what they are and then develop plans on what to do about them. So primarily the direct emissions that, that we have from our site are from our electric, not our electric vehicles, what we hope to be electric vehicles, but from our vehicle fleet, from our transportation, uh, from our landfill. Uh, I will tell you before I became lab director, I didn't even realize we had a landfill on the site. Um, and then third, uh, from other various things like boilers, chillers, diesel generators, and so forth. The other big 
second big piece, what they call scope two, is emissions because of our own because of our operations. So that's primarily electricity usage um, and uh, losses in transmission uh, related to our electricity use. Sure. Then, so that's not carbon emissions on the actual INL site. It's from wherever you're getting your correct. power from. The scope one is direct emissions from our site. The others from from things that as a result of us. And that, again, it's it's primarily uh, our electricity usage. I will say, fortunately, about 75% of our electricity usage that we purchase is clean to start with. So, so that's, a big, that's a big advantage for us to start from. And then last but not least, is probably the hardest thing to decarbonize, and that's all the emissions as a result of our operations, but that we don't control. Um, and so you could say, for example, we control how much electricity we use. We could stop using electricity, which isn't really realistic, uh, take that off. But the, the third piece is, um, for example, as I flew over here uh, earlier today uh, from Idaho Falls, there's emissions as a result of my transportation. There's a, emissions as a result of our employees commuting to work, things like that. And so what is INL going to do to offset those things that you can't get rid of, and then what are you doing to get rid of those things you can control? So uh, we're really quite focused initially on eliminating our emissions. Um, and so that means first things like characterizing them in, a, in, in even greater detail to understand what is the right approach to, to eliminate them. We have 605 vehicles. So I mentioned we have 890 square miles, we have a big site. So uh, we have a, a bus fleet that transports our folks from where they live, like in Idaho Falls and Pocatello, to, to the actual site facilities. We have 79 buses. So we want to take those to either um, EV, either electric or hydrogen based. Uh, and then we have a lot of other light duty and heavy duty vehicles that we need to electrify or find some other non-emitting uh, path for. So that's, a, that's a, a big piece, a big focus. We're characterizing the emissions off of our landfill currently to try to understand what is the best approach then to deal with those emissions. And then there's a lot of focus uh, because it is our biggest source of emissions on uh, transitioning the remainder of our electricity usage to non-carbon emitting electricity. Then in terms of offsetting, there are things like employee commuting that we can't drive completely to zero. So we have to look at, at techniques related to like carbon capture and sequestration uh, that frankly will be a little bit further down the road. Sure, and none of this is going to be cheap. It's going to require a significant investment. Where's that money coming from? Correct. Um, and well. It's a mix, but you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, none of these things are cheap. Um, so some of it is very aligned with our mission and we can take advantage of procurement that we would do anyway, but do that procurement in a little bit different way. So for example, the vehicle fleet is probably the easiest one to think about. Those vehicles are going to age out. They're going to need to be replaced. And we make sure that we replace them with non-emitting uh, uh, cars or trucks or, or, or buses. Some of that's easy. You just say, okay, this, this vehicle's finished its end of life. We replace it with an EV. Um, some of it's harder, like, like the buses, you can't currently just buy a non-emitting bus that can operate on our site uh, in the conditions that it is. So we have to work with developers to make that available so that when we get around to buying it in say 2024, that that actual product is there and developed and, and can meet our needs. Um, so some of it's just aligning and, and, and using a procurement that we would already do, uh, and maybe at a small premium, and in some cases it actually might save us some money. Uh, it, it varies a little bit depending on what we're talking about. 
The other big thing is when we look at our electricity usage, we're very interested in nuclear with a nuclear laboratory. And so we're talking to different nuclear vendors, not only about R&D on their concepts, but how some of their concepts can be demonstrated on our site and we may be able to use the energy from them. Uh, and of course, we may talk more in more detail, but uh, currently UAMPS, the Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems, is working with a company called NuScale uh, on something they call the carbon-free power project, which would be a small modular reactor sited on our site. Now that won't be operational until 2029, but that, that represents a really important opportunity for perhaps that we get the electricity from that small modular reactor. Sure, as the nuclear facility, having these proof of concept projects that as an ancillary you get energy from. Correct. And you referenced earlier on that the National Labs are Department of Energy um, sites, and I'm curious, is this clean energy push something that is a directive from the Biden administration, or is this independent at your facility? So, yes, the Department of Energy has, has 17 different laboratories, as I mentioned. Some of them, 10 of them are basic science laboratories. They do all kinds of fundamental science. We're, just for context, we're one of the applied energy laboratories, and we're the one focused on nuclear. The other two are NREL down in Colorado. They focus on renewable energy and then NETL that has multiple sites on the country. And they've been typically focused more on carbon-based uh, energy systems, coal and natural gas, and carbon management. So for us, we've always been nuclear. And nuclear is non-carbon emitting. Nuclear is clean energy. And so it's a very direct line uh, when the administration says they want to do de deep decarbonization. We kind of say, yeah, that, that's the energy source that we work on. Something I haven't talked as much about is when we've as part of our nuclear R&D portfolio, we recognize that there's going to be, it's not going to all be nuclear. We're going to need intermittent uh, renewable sources, wind and solar. Uh, you know, I'm sure you see wind turbines when you drive to work. So how does nuclear fit with these other energy sources? That's something that we've been working on for years already. So it frankly, it just fits. All right. Let's turn our attention a little bit toward employment at the lab. We've been hearing all over the place in the news about workforce shortages and both in the private sector and in government jobs. And the type of work that you do at INL is very specialized, working on nuclear power, working on cybersecurity. How is recruitment and retention going at the lab with your employees? So it's going well, but first let me say we're hiring. Um, so if any of your, uh, your uh, listeners are interested, uh, please uh, reach out. We're definitely hiring all the time. So um, we are in you know, constant uh, efforts to hire. Um, and it's going well, but, but we don't take that for granted. There is just so much competition for the talents that we're looking for. And those are competition with private companies that we, you know, we partner with, but also they value the, the capabilities of our people. Um, and so we compete with them. They, you know, they recruit our people away uh, and for, for good reasons, and I understand that. Uh, and then we also work with the local universities. Actually, nationwide, we look, work with those, uh, universities, uh, community colleges, and even high schools to try to develop more people. Because in this clean energy space and in this cybersecurity, cyber-physical security space, we frankly don't have enough qualified people for all the work that we have in front of us as a nation. Um, and so we're, we're just constantly working that. I am happy to say as a lab of that's currently about 5,400 employees, we've hired 600 people just this fiscal year, so since last October. Um, so we're doing well, but, uh, but it's a, you know, we're, we're, we're putting a lot of effort into it as well. 
And of those 5,400 employees, just briefly, did you lose very many people um, in response to the vaccine mandates that came from the Biden administration? So we didn't lose that many, but uh, you know, I, did, I didn't want to lose any. You know, just to be clear, uh, I was disappointed that that we would lose anyone as a result of it. We don't know exactly how many people that we lost uh, related to the vaccine requirement because people leave for different reasons, and they don't always tell you why. Uh, we estimate that we lost under 100, and it was probably quite a bit less than 100. Um, so we managed through that, but I, I will say that uh, it's not my goal to lose anybody uh, for those kinds of reasons. Let's talk now about cybersecurity. Uh, the public universities have recently started a cybersecurity program. Um, you know, in the day-to-day -day, as I'm palling around the state house, we hear from lawmakers and from the governor's office that INL is a partner in cybersecurity work that is happening at the state level. What is the INL's um, motivation for working on cybersecurity? So our, our motivation really starts with our sponsors. We are a Department of Energy and, and Federal Laboratory, and so that's where it's, it's started. Uh, but then, of course, the threats to the nation are, are incredible. The threats to companies, states, every, everybody, it's, it's, a, it's a constant thing. Um, I'm actually very pleased to say uh, that uh, uh, the capability that we have at the laboratory that's been developed particularly over the last several years to a decade is world recognized. And, and our focus area is control system cyber. So over time, control systems are in everything that we do, um, and particularly in our energy infrastructure and they represent vulnerabilities. Um, and so that's where our people focus and, uh, and our folks, our, our, our folks, our staff, um, they support not only the Department of Energy, but the Department of Homeland Security and multiple other federal agencies with threats both that they're experiencing in federal agencies and in private companies uh, domestically, but also to some of our allied partners um, that are also experiencing these, these threats on their, on their critical infrastructure. And for a layperson and for myself, can you explain in a little more detail what those control systems are? So think about, um, well, let me, let me try to make sure I don't get into jargon like relays and things like that. But, but uh, um, think maybe I'll put, try, to, try to use this example. It's not really an energy infrastructure control system, but think about an autonomous vehicle, all right? There are a lot of different systems in that vehicle that are controlling, so control system, where that vehicle is going. Now, and we do research in this space as well, now think about you're driving down the highway, maybe you're out, out on, on the highway and you're doing 80 miles an hour, somebody takes control of your vehicle um, and, and it's communicating. And so there, there, are, there are different vectors, different pathways, sorry to use those words, uh, on which people can enter into these control systems and take control of that and do something malicious with it. Uh, these attacks could happen on a car. I use that because that's, I think, something that people can relate to. Even more concerning, well, there's probably nothing more concerning if you're driving that vehicle than, than that, but also in a broader sense, uh, think about a water treatment facility that is actively has systems that are adjusting the water quality, adjusting the chemistry of water that might go to your drinking water. Uh, or think about a control system that is adjusting electricity to different places that could cut it off. Uh, or even surge it in different ways that could be destructive. So there are just so many of these, I'll, again, for lack of using jargon, parts of these control system that are accessible to whether that's a wireless connection or a direct connection line that people can potentially get into and, uh, and then control those systems for nefarious purposes. 
And who generally are these malicious actors? Where are these threats uh, coming from? You know, they can come from anywhere. Uh, you know, oftentimes we talk about um, uh, non-allied countries um, that, uh, that, that may be responsible for certain things. I won't get into any of those details. But frankly, they could come from, from any of those, or they can come from, it, it may sound silly, but somebody in their basement that, uh, that has, uh, has skills and, and has understanding about some control systems have more vulnerabilities than others. A big part of what our folks do is look at how to design new control systems uh, that don't have vulnerabilities, or if they have vulnerabilities, the things that are of most consequence are protected, uh, something that we call consequence-driven cyber-informed engineering. For systems that are already deployed, you, you know that's not an option. You have to think about how to uh, protect and maybe replace those systems, understand what their vulnerabilities are, and in some cases, replace them. All right. And let's talk about the energy conversation. It's the nuclear laboratory. What do you and your staff see as the future of nuclear energy in the United States? So, um, you know, you are talking to a nuclear engineer uh, who, who leads a nuclear laboratory, um, but even, even with that qualifier, I'd say there is absolutely no way that we can achieve the deep decarbonization targets that people are talking about without a significant expansion of nuclear energy. So things that we focus on, first and foremost, is keeping our current 93 reactors operating in this country. Uh, they represent more than half of our non-carbon emitting electricity currently, more than wind, solar, hydro, all the other things combined. So we do research uh, to help make sure that they, are, they continue to operate. At the end of the day, it's a financial decision. So a part of that is uh, trying to look at new technologies and integration of new technologies to reduce the cost of their current operations. Uh, and then we see a significant need for grow out of additional nuclear energy. So that's where we focus more on, on what we call the advanced reactors, the reactors, that, the, the nuclear power systems that come next. Happy to talk more about those if you're interested. Yeah, let's dive into it. Okay, so love to, thank you. <laughs> so. Um, one of the things for, for context, uh, so on the, on the desert site, the 890 square miles, uh, back in the 50s and 60s, nuclear energy was born. So one of the things I hope that, that people in Idaho know and understand and are proud of is that nuclear deployed around, all around the world now can trace its origins to the technologies that were developed and demonstrated on the site back in the 50s and 60s. A really an amazing time in terms of innovation and what, what that has resulted in now, whether you look at it in terms of power or, or $600 billion annually to, to our gross domestic product, however you kind of look at it, it's major, major impact to not just the nation but the world. But we went through a period of time where we built out all those, those reactors and we didn't really need to anymore. We sort of stopped. In fact, uh, some of your listeners may know that in 1994, the, the uh, site actually transitioned away from nuclear R&D and became a cleanup site. In 2005 is when the Idaho National Laboratory was established in its current form and re-given the, the mantle, if you will, of being the premier laboratory for nuclear energy research and development. So that was the government federal government in, in 2005 saying, no, 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 we need a nuclear energy laboratory. Um, and so and since, since then, we've been building up the capabilities to support what is now happening, and that is advanced reactor development, demonstration, and, and deployment. So we went from the last time we started up a new reactor on our site was the early 70s. We're preparing to start up our very first, very small nuclear system next calendar year. We call that project Marvel. It'll only be a 100 kilowatt system but it will reestablish our kind of learnings on how to do this again, and then also be an R&D platform for, for what comes next. And then 
after that, we've got a cadence of additional reactors. So our strategy is we'll start small, kind of learn how to do it again, and build up in size and complexity. Uh, I'll tell you one thing I find really interesting is the Department of Defense uh, has a reactor project called Project Pele for a mobile nuclear power plant. That'll be one to three megawatts, and that'll be demonstrated on our site in 2024. And there's a whole timeline of additional projects. So what I'd like your listeners to understand is, yes, we didn't do anything in advanced nuclear for quite a long time other than do it on the computers. Now we're back um, and moving forward with building reactors and operating reactors again, uh, including up to in this decade, if you just look at it in this decade, the small modular reactor, which is the carbon-free power project that I mentioned, uh, where their intention is to have first commercial module operation in the summer of 2029. So really bright future for advanced reactors, and it's really happening right here in Idaho. Sure. Could you tell me a little more about the, uh, the small modulars and the micro-reactors? How are those different or similar to the reactors that were built decades ago? So, the interesting thing is um, they're, they're different and they're similar. So when you look back in the 50s and 60s, uh, they demonstrated a lot of different reactor technologies. And so while the reactors that I'm talking about now, we call them advanced reactors, uh, their base technologies were demonstrated back in the 50s and 60s. Um, of course, we've learned a lot through computer modeling, through materials and fuels development and so forth, so we're not doing the same. I mean, there's a lot of innovations that have happened that'll make them uh, either safer, more cost-effective, a lot of different performance aspects. So, so to try to maybe make this as simple as I can, um, the reactors operating around the world, including in the U.S., are predominantly what we call light water reactors. So they have light water as a key coolant and, and moderator in their system. Some of the reactors we're looking forward are, are variations of that, including the new scale reactors, which it would, uh, is the carbon-free power project I referred to earlier. That's uh, an advance on a light water reactor. Um, and the, the advancements are around smaller in modularity to reduce cost and kind of improve flexibility. Then there's other reactors like these micro-reactors that I mentioned that are fundamentally different. Um, and what does fundamentally different mean? It means they're not using light water. They're using some other kind of system as a coolant and moderator for the systems. Um, or, and then really kind of advanced, but again, it's demonstrated back in the 60s, uh, a molten salt reactor where you literally have the fuel in a liquid form. So that's you know quite a bit different. Right now, sorry, just to be clear, the light water reactors today, it's solid fuel, uranium oxide fuel, and you have water passing by that for coolant. Okay. And there is a complex conversation about energy happening worldwide, um, not just about carbon and the environment, but there's also complex geopolitical situations uh, that are driving up gas prices, among other things. Where does INL fit into that more contemporary conversation? So it's, you're absolutely right. It's really interesting, particularly it's, it's, while it's incredibly uh, sad to see um, what the Russians' unprovoked attack on the Ukrainians, um, which I, I won't go into, uh, but it, it, it's, it's really caused everybody to rethink energy dependence and energy security. A large number of European countries are, have been reliant and, and are continuing to be reliant on natural gas coming out of Russia. So you can imagine that that's motivated their conversations with the U.S., U.S. companies, and even our, even our laboratory, including myself, um, in, to, in terms of the opportunities uh, with a fairly strong focus on small modular reactors, but not just small modular reactors, to address their energy needs going forward to 
to establish greater energy independence for their countries. Uh, I'll note I was just in Romania uh, two weeks ago uh, and, uh, with a delegation from the Department of Energy talking to them about a small modular reactor project uh, for Romania. And then here in the Northwest, we're having a bit of a discussion about um, hydropower and there's, you know, it's a conversation that's been happening for a long time about breaching the Snake River dams. I'm not gonna ask you personally whether you think those dams should be breached, but is INL having a conversation with congressional delegation, other stakeholders about the role that those dams play in our power system and what um, INL could do to offset those if the dams were to be replaced? So first of all, INL is not a power provider, just, just to be clear. We develop the technologies, work with, with, with companies and, and federal agencies to demonstrate the technologies that then would be privately deployed. Um, so absolutely, but the short answer is, is absolutely. Um, and, and it's really kind of an interesting regional thing in nuclear right now. Um, and so I've been focused so far in my remarks on what's happening on the site in Idaho. But I'll also note that the Department of Energy has something they call the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Project. And out of that project, they're funding a lot of different activities, but two major reactor demonstration projects. And it just so happens the sites that are selected for those are also out here in this, in this region. And so one of those is a company called X-Energy. It's a high temperature gas reactor concept. And uh, the current site that they're working for is, uh, is in Washington State um, at the Energy Northwest site there. Um, and so, you know, regionally quite, quite, quite close, if you can, in the West. Um, and then uh, the other project of the two demos is the TerraPower Natrium Reactor. And it's uh, intended to be sited in Kemmer, Wyoming. It's particularly interesting because they're looking to site it on what is now a co uh, coal site so as they expire their coal plant or, um, or you know, stop operating their, their coal sites, they want to demonstrate that they can replace that power with a nuclear reactor and use the infrastructure and to the extent possible the, the, the uh, workforce uh, that's in that area uh, to, uh, uh, you know, to continue to prosper and, and, and have energy, but now from nuclear energy. And so all of these projects will show a path forward on whether or not you know, s small modular reactors look like a great, or not a great, um, I, you know, I'm betting on the great, uh, opportunity for replacing power from whether that's a coal site, uh, whether that's a, a nuclear site that's, that's, uh, you know, that was shut down for whatever reason, or, or potentially for hydro replacement. And nuclear energy is, uh it's very promising, but there are also concerns that come along with it, both with waste or people may think of accidents like Chernobyl or Three Mile. What do you and your people at Idaho National Laboratory do to provide good information and um, sell the idea of nuclear energy to a public that may be skeptical about it? So first, yes, uh, so let me answer that, but I'll say it's, it's not just promising. I mean, more than half of our, uh, our non-carbon emitting electricity in the U.S. right now is coming from nuclear power. So think about if that went away. Um, so so t about 20% of our total electricity. So you, know, you can think about it, one in every five ho homes in the, in the U.S. is powered by nuclear energy. And so what we're talking about is preserving that and growing that out even further. Interestingly enough, um, you know, I've, I've been in the, the nuclear energy business for quite a while, and uh, really, particularly in the last few years, watching support grow for nuclear energy for a variety of reasons. A lot related to clean, uh, the fact that it is a non-carbon emitting source. So we're seeing a lot greater acceptance from people who are very envi environmentally minded 
uh, as well as the 24-7 the nature of it or the, the continual nature of it that can balance out when the wind isn't blowing and when the sun isn't shining, for example. So we are actually um, fortunate that we're seeing greater public interest and exception, uh, or not exception, but uh, interest in, in nuclear energy. In fact, polls typically have shown about 60% uh, favorable towards nuclear energy. Recent polls have that number as high as 80%. So that's promising to see. Now, what role do we play? We, we provide unbiased, credible technical information. What does the safety really look like? When people worry about some of the past accidents, whether that was Three Mile Island, Fukushima, or Chernobyl, three of the, the probably most famous, well-known nuclear power incidents, um, you know, what happened and what are we doing differently today relative to what happened at that point? Um, just for, so your listeners know in case they don't, no one uh, was harmed from in Fukushima or Three Mile Island as a result of radiation. That is not the case for Chernobyl. Um, and uh, a key point, there's a lot of details and jargon I could get into, but a key point is that that Russian reactor, besides having very different design characteristics and functions than anything the Nuclear Regulatory Commission would license in the United States, it also did not have any kind of containment structure. Um, so when they had a situation, there was nothing to contain it. Um, and, uh, and I can promise you our U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission would never approve anything like that, and, and nor would we advocate for anything like that. So very, very different. I know uh, some may be skeptical, you know, oh yeah, that sounds, but it's very, very different. So what we do is we try, one of the things we do is try to help people understand. How is it different? What are we talking about? And what are the facts? And what do we do with spent fuel with the nuclear waste once uh, it comes out of a power plant? So right now what we do is, is we store it uh, very safely and very securely. Now that's not a long-term solution, but, but really quickly, um, we, we store it in, in big, big pools of water. Think about you know, really, really big swimming pools when it first comes out of the reactor. It cools over a period of time, typically on the order of five years. Um, the water both uh, provides a cooling purpose, but it also provides a radiation shielding purpose. Then once it's reached a certain cooling temperature or cooling time, we can put it into dry storage. So these are big cylindrical uh, canisters that, uh, that the, the fuel just sits in there safely and securely. They're very, very robust. In fact, early in my career, I designed such systems, so I know a lot about them. Um, but that's not a long-term solution. Longer-term solution, uh, we need to either uh, have a geologic repository. Uh, you may be familiar with there was a site called Yucca Mountain uh, that was being looked at uh, for, for ultimate geologic disposal. Uh, so you're talking about very, very long, essentially infinite separation from human beings. Um, another possibility which would go along with geologic disposal is to recycle some of the usable material. We do not currently do that in this country, but we'll see whether or not we, we end up doing that in the future. But I should have said the short answer is we do need uh, deep geologic disposal uh, for the material. Right. We will have our eyes on the Idaho National Laboratory, especially as those reactors come online in the, uh, the upcoming years. Director John Wagner, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Idaho Reports is back on the air in October, but until then, you can catch us on the weekly podcast and in print on our blog. You'll find it all at idahoptv.org slash idahoreports. Thanks for watching. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television, 
and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.